0: welcome to the how of business with henry lopez and david begin the podcast that helps you start run and grow your small business and now here are your hosts
1: welcome to this episode of the how of business this is henry lopez and my guest today is beth kolko beth welcome to the show thank you henry we're excited to have you here, as uh, such an extensive background and experience that you have that we're going to get to chat about today Uh, Beth is an academic uh, turned entrepreneur who has been at the forefront of multiple technology-driven culture shifts. She was one of the first academic researchers involved in the early days of the Internet when she studied text-based virtual worlds, early messaging platforms and social networks, also digital games and technology for international development. And we'll have her explain what that means a little bit. She helped kickstart the academic makerspace movement with her Hackademia project. I think I pronounced that right. Hackademia project at the University of Washington uh, where she built the first SMS based uh, transportation apps and early digital health, health tools for emerging markets. And she has pioneered work on non-expert innovation influenced by the maker and hacker communities uh, worldwide. And I said a lot there. So this whole concept of the non-expert having influence over things like devices, medical devices is something we're gonna chat about. Very interesting topic. So, so shift labs, which uh, again, uh, got to start got its help through Y uh, Combinator. Um, You create medical devices that improve healthcare delivery in emerging markets. And we're gonna talk about that specifically. Uh, Shift Lab combines excellence in engineering and human-centered design to create new kinds of products that outperform traditional devices in what you call austere regions. And you said somewhere that you know simple is the key to saving lives, and I think that's at the heart of, in particular, this first product that you've released through Shift Labs. Uh, so uh, the other thing she shares with us is that her most delightful surprise has been discovering that great design contributes to health, qu- healthcare equity worldwide. So Shift Labs customers span geography from Kentucky to Zimbabwe. Uh, Beth lives in the Seattle, Washington area. And so in today's episode, Beth's gonna share with us her very interesting journey and experiences, how she went from academia to entrepreneurship co-founding Shift Labs, what they're doing today, and some of those experiences that she went through with that startup process. So the first thing obviously that caught my attention, Beth, is uh, you have a PhD in English, so I'm always curious as to what what course you were on then and and why you decided to get a PhD in English.
0: Well that's a long story. I <laughs> started uh, going I went to graduate school. Uh, At the time I was studying Swahili and I was uh, studying African literature, Uh, but I, I ended up changing course in grad school for all sorts of uninteresting reasons. Um, And I ended up studying cultural theory and rhetoric. And at the time the internet was, it was a thing, but uh, it didn't have pictures. It was all text on a screen. So it made sense as as someone coming from an English department as a starting out English professor to study the Internet because it was was about writing and reading. Uh, That was really how I got involved with technology and thinking about issues of technology design and who uses technology and how we can redesign things in a way that brings more people into the fold and really lowers barriers to usage.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting, and I'm going to have to be very careful here, Beth, because I could go off for an hour on your your interesting background. <laughs> but I have to go back and ask why Swahili.
0: Um, I took some really riveting uh, classes as an undergraduate um, in African literature. Had some really in- a couple of really inspiring professors, and uh, wanted to wanted to dive into that area. And learning languages is a Key part of reading regional literature.
1: Of course. (laughs) That is for (laughs) all of us. Okay, so back then, did you see yourself going into academia? Did you have, was entrepreneurship at all on the horizon? Tell me about where you were thinking you were going to go career-wise back then.
0: Oh, well, that's... Now you're inviting me to rewrite history <laughs> <laughs> and sound like I had a very. And I also track. want to know what your
1: parents thought about this uh, this education choice.
0: Um, well, my you know my my uh, father was always very supportive of my work uh, in academia, and I think it was a time where uh, the humanities maybe um, had a better reputation. Yes. Um, yes. I actually am a huge advocate for the humanities and, and cultural theory and, and critical thinking. Um, I think we end up with better technology when people have a multidisciplinary preparation. So I, you know, I'm a real big advocate of uh, the whole STEM to STEAM movement of bringing, bringing arts into our science, technology, and engineering curricula. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation, Henry. I
1: know, I know. I could talk about that for an hour because it <laughs> fascinates me. But, but again, going back to you specifically, what you were thinking back then?
0: Um, I what I was thinking is I really like solving problems. I have always loved solving problems, and I actually did start uh, a company when I was a graduate student with some of my fellow uh, some of my fellow grad students, and we were working with a very early software program called HyperCard. And we would built some educational software uh, in our department for our students. And we thought, well, let's, let's build an educational software company. And so this was about in what, 1991 or 1992 and things, you know, things were going okay. And we came to this point where we either needed to commit, there were three of us. We either needed to commit to building a company or finishing our dissertations. And we collectively decided to finish our dissertations. And so that company never went anywhere. Uh, but it was my first taste of entrepreneurship and I liked it. And I think I just had it on the back burner and I was waiting for the right opportunity.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting. So much here that you've touched on though, that I can't let go of is, is, you know, the whole concept of what you learn from a problem solving and critical thinking skills. And I agree with you completely that that, basis in the humanities and the arts and we're eliminating that more and more in our education. But again, we'll get, I'll get off of that soapbox. But I, I have to think now as I look at this and putting together the thread of your your career and your experiences, you seem to have lived a life where you, you have gone where your curiosity has taken you without very many limits. And it's been powered by this curiosity and this ability to to do the critical thinking and solving problems and that seems to be how how you've gone about life am I am I on to something there or
0: I think that's true. I've been very, very lucky. Um, I have had just incredible opportunities to to follow my curiosity and one advantage of working as an academic is I've been able to redirect my research programs and and dive deep into new areas, and it's, you know, it's constant, a constant process of learning. Um, I'm, I'm probably a much better student than I am an academic expert, uh, but, um, but that's okay.
1: Yeah, but nonetheless, you've been a professor, and the thing that's interesting that I think has to be related to this is you are a professor in an engineering school although you don't have an engineering background, is that because you bring to bear these critical thinking skills and other skills of courses? Or how did you end up being someone with an English PhD at an engineering school?
0: Well, as I mentioned, I studied the internet in its early days before it had pictures. And then as the technology changed, I just I kept up. And there was a lot of just self-learning and, and uh, folks who would teach me informally. And I got to the point you know, I was, I was an English professor. I did that for six, six seven years. Um, and I, you know, I got tenure and I was like, okay, this, I could do this now. And, um, and I, at the time I was looking at technology use and I was looking at issues of race and gender in the U S and patterns of technology usage. And I was doing, uh, critiques of user interface design. And I got to the point where I was like, well, I could continue to write these critiques or I could help build better stuff. And I, decided I'd really help build better stuff. Um, And that was when I decided to make the transition to engineering because that's what engineers do is they build things. And there was an opportunity at the University of Washington, so I I moved universities. And at the time, they did hire me because of that rhetoric and cultural theory background tied to uh, the emerging uh, scholarship around internet. And that was what I did. Uh, so that was a, a, a great opportunity to move. And the department that I'm in is a very multidisciplinary unit um, in the College of Engineering. So there are people who have computer science degrees, but then there are also people like me who come from the humanities.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. So we'll move forward a bit because of time here, but uh, academia. And uh, the the thing I found very interesting to kind of summarize one point uh, that was related to that, I believe was either in a video or something I read, but this whole concept of experts are not necessarily the best at solving a problem fascinates me. So I'm hoping you could tell us about that experience and and that that thought um, and expand upon that if you would for us.
0: Sure. Um, Well, there are many ways to solve a problem. And... There are many different kinds of problems that need solving. What I found in uh, sort of the mid-2000s, I kind of stumbled into this whole hacker and maker community um, in the larger Seattle area. And I was just, I was transfixed because I'd come from academia and I had worked in industry research labs. And and this was like a, a totally different kind of research community of people who didn't have formal training. And they were, as you mentioned earlier, they were guided by their curiosity and they went wherever their curiosity led them. And I was like, oh, these are my people. Um, and I just got very, very interested in the, the way that they could look at a problem space um, without... Being hampered by the traditional boundaries um, of that problem space, and so they were able to pull in solutions from adjacent areas, and that led to really creative problem solving and innovative approaches. And I thought, well, this is honestly is very it's very similar to what happened with my transition out of the humanities. As I thought, well, this is really interesting, and I started writing a book about it, about non expert innovation and and the way non experts uh, tackle problem solving. And then I got to the point where I was like, well, I can either write about this or I can do it. And I'd uh, actually really rather do it. And that's what led me to uh, start Shift Labs.
1: Okay. Very interesting. What, And in particular, what fascinates about it for me is as a small business owners, we become expert in our little realm, right? In our particular business. And the people that we work with, usually a small business owners it might be a small group we we do lose that ability to to have that non-expert perspective. So I'm curious as to, and I'm sure you've given us some thought, for small business owners like me, are there any tips, advice, or thoughts that come to mind as to how we leverage non-experts to help us in growing our business or making decisions about our business or just seeing our business from a different perspective?
0: I think one of the biggest challenges for any business owner, really, than anyone probably is, knowing when to use the existing structures or the, um, the traditional boundaries of a problem space and when to look outside of it. And it's a delicate balance. Um, what we do at shift is we listen to our customers. We let our customers lead us in. try as, as we work to figure out, okay, now where, where are the traditional ways of doing things uh, when it comes to medical devices? When is that? When's that going to be the right path? Um, and when do we have to push boundaries a little bit? And it's really about meeting those customer needs. And then you're
1: listening to people, you know, in a undeveloped country who are applying or using these technologies who don't have the medical experience or training and background. You're using you're using their non-expert experience and input as well, right?
0: Well, they're certainly experts at healthcare, right? They're yeah, they're yeah. clinicians and they mm-hmm. they know how to treat their patients. Um, but what they, you know, when we collaborate w- with them, we're able to get their insight into what kinds of technologies would help solve their problems. One of the things that's so interesting in the medical space is often there'll be kind of a you'll have a um, and a product on the market and and then it. Will be defeatured, right? You'll, there'll be like a value line which is made available in uh, in an emerging market in a developing region, um, and so it's, you basically you take a core or something and you strip it down. Um, but our perspective is, well, let's go, let's let's take that problem space and go back, strip it down to its first principles, and then say, okay, what could you build from the ground up to solve that problem? So rather than thinking about how to how to tweak an existing technology to defeature it and make it work. What if we built something new that's really optimized for in um, you know, some sort of austere environment? And that's uh, that's where the partnerships with clinicians all over the world are essential. Yeah,
1: and for a small business owner, this concept of the non-expert is, is that one of the things that you benefited from from being part of an accelerator or an incubator is those other people. They're expert in other areas, maybe just generally in business, but not an expert. Maybe let's say in medical devices, and they might bring unique or fresh perspectives to solving the problem. Is that one of the things you got from those uh, those environments?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's fair. Um, so we've we've participated in two incubators. One of the things that they had in common was um, taking best principles from small business from any industry, really startups and, and saying this applies to you, even though you're in this specialized area, this regulated space of medical devices, there's no reason you can't move fast. Um, or there's no reason you can't be customer focused. Like there's like these really valuable learnings from how to build a business and, applying those regardless of the industry, that was a fantastic experience for us as we participated in the programs. Yeah,
1: yeah. So clarify for me, if you would, Beth, the the ultrasound product. Was that just an idea or did that end up being a prototype? Explain that to me if you would.
0: Well, that was an academic project. It was a prototype that we built and we did it under the auspices of, you know, I had my my academic hat on at the time Mm -hmm. and it was... The process of trying to commercialize that uh, as an academic team that really helped point out what some of the um, structural challenges are when it comes to low-cost medical devices. So when I decided to start the company, you know, there's all kinds of things that I did wrong. But one of the things that I did right (laughs) is I did recognize that bringing ultrasound to market would be expensive. And we had no money. I mean, literally, we had zero dollars. Uh, yep. So we didn't want to start with an uh, with an ultrasound prod, uh, product. It made no sense for us as a bootstrap startup. So what we did instead is we went to a bunch of clinicians and we said, Hey, what's really hard about your life? You know, what do you what do you struggle with on a daily basis? And came up with a list of challenges there. And then we sat down with a bunch of hardware hackers and we said, Hey, which of these do you think we could we could solve inexpensively using existing technology? And we had to throw out some really compelling ideas, but we settled on a few, and the, the uh, infusion monitoring, drug delivery, uh, was one of the things that pretty much everyone said they struggled with, and so that we decided to build a product in that area, and that's what resulted in our drip assist infusion rate monitor.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and we're going to dive into that. What that is here in a moment. The thing that I that really caught my attention as we were doing as I was doing the research is what you just touched on. Is this challenge that you uncovered that the low cost category items, the the big guys, the big manufacturers, they're not interested in these products, right? Ex- explain that and that that dynamic that exists in the market today.
0: Uh, there's two there's two stories that I can tell you. One is. Um, when we were working on that ultrasound project and, and talking about potential commercialization partners, there was a VP of, um, of a large medical device company who, you know, I think he just put, took pity on me. He just sat me down. He said, look, we could make cheaper technology, but it wouldn't support the cost of our sales force. So we have no right. motivation to do so. And I thought, wow, that's, it seems like. That, that caught your
1: attention, I'm sure. Right it did. Away. I right. was like, well, that seems like I a broken model. Yeah, yeah. Surely. Yes.
0: Surely we can find a better way. Um, Right. And, but he was right. And the industry is built around expectations around certain price points and then also having consumables. So the razor blade model, right? So you have your Mm -hmm. recurring revenue. And that has been probably one of our most... uh, most significant, but also most fascinating challenges, right? Like I can't stop thinking like a researcher as we, as we do the day to day. And it is, it is fascinating, um, the mm-hmm. way that this is structured. And, you know, one of the things that we can do as a startup is we can challenge those conventions and, and we can find the weak points in the system and, and push on them and move towards change.
1: Yeah. know, yeah, It's fascinating. All right. So, so drip assist is the first product you've brought to market. Introduce that for us. Explain to us what that is, please.
0: So basically, if you are in pretty much any medical care environment, uh, you're going to get some medication. You're going to probably get some fluid or drugs. And uh, usually you're going to have a an, an IV, right? So like a tube in your vein, mm-hmm. a needle uh, in, uh, inserted into your vein. And that's how in the US, they'll use a pump, an infusion pump to deliver uh, fluid and medication with accuracy. But most people in the world, actually the vast majority of people, uh, get their medication and their fluids uh, without a pump. And instead, what a nurse will do is hang that bag of fluid and then there's a little pinch clamp and they'll sort of open that pinch clamp, and they'll, and then there's this little chamber that the drops fall through. And the, the nurse or the, the healthcare worker will watch those drops, and then they'll kind of look at their watch, and they'll time how many drops are falling per minute. And then they'll do some mental math based on the needle size, and from there they'll calculate um, how much medication you're getting. And as you can imagine, um, it's a very time-consuming process. It's also... Uh, not accurate at all. We know from the research, like four out of five times or at least 20% off the mark. So we said, okay, we're not going to try to build. Which means
1: that the the, the drugs that are being deployed aren't as effective, all those kinds of challenges. And, And if I understand correctly, Beth, the reason they're doing it manually is primarily because of a lack of consistent or reliable electrical power, or is it the expense of those electric pumps, or is it
0: both? It's actually a whole ecosystem of issues. So Pumps are a great technology, um, but they do have th- certain requirements. So they do require power. Um, some of them, they'll have battery packs, but they, you know they, those just run a few hours. So they'll require power. They usually require a proprietary consumable. Um, mm-hmm. They'll require regular calibration. Um, so you've got to have people with the training can come out and calibrate them on a regular basis, So they, and they'll need maintenance. And it requires a bunch of training to use, too. So there's this whole kind of ecosystem of requirements surrounding pumps, which just make them not the best solution for um, many care environments around the world. And those are the people we wanted to reach with our product. Like, I would right. never tell a U.S. hospital to not use their infusion pumps. I mean, they're fantastic. They're smart pumps. Right. They've got these drug libraries. They're they're great. But they're not going to help the nurses in Haiti who are... Um, helping a woman with eclampsia give birth safely. They're not going to help the doctors in Zimbabwe give blood transfusions to pediatric patients without causing congestive heart failure, right? Like there are all these these patients that deserve great care and pumps aren't going to solve their problem. So we wanted to find a way to build a simple technology that would solve their problem.
1: And it is battery powered with just a regular batteries, right? And that was another point you've made. It's not a special battery. It's a battery I can find yeah, more more readily in these remote areas.
0: It runs off one AA battery for uh, almost 400 hours. Wow. And you can yeah. find a AA battery anywhere in the world. Right. So
1: how did you, obviously there's a lot of detail here. So I just wanted a high level. One of the things that immediately comes to mind, we're talking about a medical device. What were some of the things you did to make it cost effective to be able to sell this at such a low price point? did you did you have to really shop around for different sources of these components that were cheaper? Um, just that has to have been a challenge, especially early on or still when you're not producing you know millions of these. So tell us about that and how you've been able to manage that?
0: Well, there's both the business strategy, standpoint of it. And then there's what we do from a manufacturing standpoint. So from a business strategy, early on, I got some great advice, which is to price for growth, not for margin, when you're starting out making small batches. And then that's what we do. Uh, But in terms of the product itself, you know, we just we built something that would be um, easy to assemble. uh, So reducing labor costs as much as we could, we use really simple components. I mean, the board and the devices, really, like, it's very simple. Um, Okay, just really, um, doing the kind of design for manufacture work to strip out as much as we, we could and knowing that we needed to optimize for both the durability of the device and simplicity of assembly.
1: And is it mostly made up of components that were already existing technology that you're leveraging that was already at a lower price point? Is that is that part of it?
0: Well, no, not really. No, we, um, you know, we have molds. We made our own components. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, the circuit board. You know, the, it's not like we had a chip designed. Um, right. We just used what was uh, something that was cheap and available, and mm-hmm. yeah.
1: But expensive. from from the outset, the 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 item that you the 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 device that you selected to go to market with was always influenced by this overall goal of something that was at a low price point that could be deployed uh, in these remote areas and it wasn't going to be there was going to be one of those low cost items that other people don't want to bring to market right that's always been the focus at least initially with shift labs correct
0: absolutely i mean one yeah. of the one of the things that the clinicians that we spoke to early on were really eager for was a solar powered oxygen concentrator, mm-hmm. which okay. sounded fascinating, and you know the right. hardware hackers got super excited and were like, "Let's! This sounds fun!" And keep in mind, this is seven years ago, so the you know the technology has changed, and actually there are people working on it now, um, but. You know, we did the, we looked at, the, we did the equations, we did the power equations, and we were like, you know what, we're not going to get the efficiencies that we need. We, we can't build this today with the existing technology. And so we put it mm-hmm. aside because we were yeah. absolutely prioritizing what is the technology that's available today that we can use to solve the problem.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was trying to ask a moment ago that I didn't ask very well is that that that's been a purposeful approach so that you can get to market sooner and you're not incurring tremendous costs from a research and development. You're using components that are either somewhat or already readily available so that you can make this at a lower price point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're not, our goal yeah. is not to spend 10 years in the lab doing an R&D, right? right. That's, exactly. that's what universities are great at. Um, right. We want to push out the things that are available now, push them into the market and solve the problems today. Yeah.
1: This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the Howa Business podcast. And I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner, I understand the challenges you are experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services, And to schedule your free coaching session, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. So this whole challenge of, in your case, it's a medical device, but you had an idea for something that you're going to make. It has some level of complexity because it is a medical device. We all are challenged with, we've got this idea and how how do we make it? How do we get to market? How do we produce the prototype? How do we get it out there? Thinking back, you've touched on some of the, what are some of those early challenges or mistakes that you would avoid now that you would offer to someone listening who has an idea for a product and they're just, uh, they don't know how to get from point A to, you know, the next subsequent steps in getting this thing made?
0: Well, I have a great co-founder. So who has a mechanical engineering background and understands Mm. manufacturing. So I think finding the right partners is essential. Um, and then just networking. I mean, we I just, we talk to people. I talk to people all the time. I can, you know, my theory is I'll talk to anyone because I can learn from everyone. Um, mm. And that's been really essential. Uh, if I think about a problem or a mistake that we made early on, you know, when you, when you launch a new product, um, sales projections are really hard because you're just, yes. you're making it up. There's no, you yeah. have no past data to go on. And we... Um, we made a big batch early on when we were selling to veterinarians. So before we got our FDA clearance, we sold to, uh, to veterinarians.
1: Very and
0: we did some projections, and we were wrong. And so we sunk a lot of money into inventory um, at a time where we really didn't need to do that. And I think that that's But how
1: would you challenge. think you would have been able to how do you avoid that when as you say you're you're predicting the future here? There's nothing to to compare it to a basis. So what if you were doing it again, would you have done it differently?
0: I would. Um what we did was we took advice from experts and I probably I shouldn't see. have done that. <laughs> I see. <laughs>
1: It back to the initial conversation we were having about experts and non-experts. Yeah.
0: So I think questioning assumptions, like never be afraid to question an assumption, even if it comes from an expert.
1: Yeah. Did you get, uh, I was curious as to what, what the feedback and the pushback was from friends and colleagues when you shared this idea?
0: Oh, um,
1: And does that, did that that matter to you? You know, I'm always curious because often one of the things that holds us back, especially if we haven't been in business before, is the opinions of others matter more than they should.
0: Yeah, so it was interesting. I mean, some people were very supportive and some people really weren't. Um, And you just have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, I knew why I was doing what I was doing. um, And that was important to me. Um, One of my... um, you know, I have a couple friends who've built companies, and some of them, some of them were, were again very supportive, and some of them weren't. Um, medical devices are different than a lot of other products, um, and they have their own they have their own set of challenges. Um, and sure, there are times where where we wondered, oh, "Why are we doing this?" Or I wondered, "Why am I doing this?" Um, I mean, I had a very comfortable job as a as a professor before I started the company. Um, but there were, I guess, you know, there were still, there were other kinds of problems I wanted to solve. And I knew I couldn't do those um, solely through my teaching and research. And yeah. I've never regretted that decision.
1: Now, touching on that, you had other sources of income while you were launching this. Is that true or, or not?
0: I did. Uh, I went on leave. I went on a partial leave. So I didn't have to pay my bills. That was about it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's sacrifices. I mean, I, I'm it's financially uh, taken some hits, but like I said, it's, uh, the trade-offs are worth it. But you have to yeah. have your eyes wide open and, and know what you're going going into. So yeah, I was able to go on, uh, go on leave from the university, um, but maintain a little bit of income until we were able to raise money for the company, and then the company could pay me.
1: Okay, so you raised some money. Is that I was going to ask how you initially funded the startup. Where did the money come from?
0: Well, I put in some savings. Um, Another early um, partner did as well. And we did a little crowdfunding off of Indiegogo, like in early, early days. Um, Very cool. And that did get us a phone call from the FDA. I think we were the first medical device (laughs) to try to crowdfund. And yeah, so we got a phone call. They were super nice. Was the
1: phone call of the cease and desist type or or were they just asking questions?
0: Um, They were actually, they were great. They said, we want to help you not make a mistake. And, Interesting. I yep, love that. They were, they were terrific. Uh, but it was, it was eye-opening. Um, so we raised a little bit of money, like $15,000 doing that. And that got us through our prototype run, and it got us to the point where we were selling product to those veterinarians. And actually, the veterinarians found us because of the crowdfunding. Um, and then we uh, went through uh, the Fledge Incubator, which was a little bit of money. And then in 2015... Right. We went through Y Combinator, which is an incubator down in Silicon Valley, and that was quite a bit more money, and then we raised a seed round after after that. Okay, uh, I see. Experience.
1: And if I understand Fledge's model, and I don't know about Y Combinator, did they take a piece of the business?
0: They did. They each took a certain percentage. Uh, Fledge does some shares, and then half of that, they'll do a revenue buyback program.
1: Okay. Yeah, so let's just touch on Fledge for a moment because that's how I came to know you. Uh, mm-hmm. Looney Libus was on our show back in episode one thirty nine. Great guest mm-hmm. and tremendous insights. Uh, so j- just briefly for our listeners who haven't listened to that episode, or it's been a while, uh, but my understanding is a Fledge Fledge is a is a um, uh, accelerator program really that helps what they call impactful entrepreneurs. So they they look for businesses or ideas or companies that have a social component to them. And as they say, they take their ideas into reality and prototype stage companies, which maybe maybe better fit who you were at the time, into growth uh, via what they call an intense 10-week program of guidance, education, and a massive amount of mentorship, as Looney explains. A lot of it is is practicing that pitch, fine-tuning that business plan and, and that idea, And helping with those kind of things so let's just go off on that tangent for a moment tell us about that experience some of the key things you took away from it and just share with us what that was all about
0: i tell people that one of the most profound things that came out of fledge for us was um its ability to be a clarifying moment for the people who were involved in the company Um, because that was really early days for us and Mm. building a startup is hard and it's not for everybody. Um, So it was just a really terrific opportunity to improve our communication as a team, um, get a better understanding of who was interested in doing what and what they wanted their role to be as we built the enterprise. And I, I don't think we would have been able to... Um, have that level of internal honesty as a team um, if we hadn't gotten that mentoring um, and that opportunity through Fledge. It was really valuable. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. Did uh, some people fall out and new people come on or did the same team stay intact? Your team, that is.
0: Uh, Well, eventually some people did fall out, not during the Fledge program, but what it did was it started a conversation and it also helped us better understand what skill sets we were missing as a team and to actively go and recruit those.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see where that was tremendously valuable. All right, very, very cool. Um, going back to the the co-founder, and you've had co-founders. I I always uh, have found that I work better with a partner with someone else. Some people are very lone wolf in their approach. Uh, tell me about that, because you you mentioned a little bit ago that you think as a researcher, did your especially your initial partners or co-founders, did do you think that they balanced that because sometimes if I if I read into that, that might mean that you analyze things longer than maybe somebody else might. But tell me about how that has helped strike a balance and helped the business.
0: So my current co-founder, which is, so we have a diff- different co-founder now. Um, I see. It's his second startup. And I would mm. say he taught me to move fast um, and to not be as analytical or at least be analytical quickly. (laughs) And it's been, I've learned so much from him, just, you know, the way that he thinks about uh, pace um, and, and what's appropriate, you know, like you just, you go fast, that's what you do. And I love that. I, it's like, it's like being set free.
1: Is it? Okay, that's interesting, Beth, because you know I've, I'm challenged with that where I tend to overanalyze things. So did you just find that, it sounds like you just found that as um, somebody gave you permission to let go of that to an extent?
0: Well, so I don't see moving fast as uh, in any way opposed to being analytical. So interesting. I, I just started teaching a class about entrepreneurship and human-centered design, and I was actually just last night lecturing about this. And startups are really data-driven. So basically you have a hypothesis and then you collect data to figure out, does your hypothesis hold? And if it doesn't, then you change your strategy. And that's you know that's part of being a startup and building a new business model or a new kind of product or en- engaging with new kinds of customers. Um, you're not just executing on a known strategy. You're building a, no- a new strategy. And it only works if it's like you have to be data-driven. But you don't have to be slow about it, right? You can, you can iterate quickly. You can have a hypothesis, collect as much data... As quickly as you can, and then make a decision. Like it doesn't have to be a six-month process. You yeah. can run a you can run a, a four-week, you can run a four-day experiment, and and so it's been learning to really combine the very best of that kind of analytical, data-driven perspective with the need for speed.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that that's at the heart of it, Beth. Because I think what it is is that the most valuable data is that data that we get from an iteration, mm-hmm. from testing, from putting something out there, from prototyping as opposed to trying to gather all of the data, which is we go back to the example of the financial projections that you talked about, they're going to be wrong. Right. And so if we iterate and get that data in a different way, rather than trying to have all of the answers, which are just projections at best, that's the difference. And it, it seems like that's what you saw very quickly.
0: And it's what I think is the most fun.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so the social component of it we've touched on, but you kind of alluded to here that this uh, fit in with your personal why, but just talk to us about that again. Share with us really from a social perspective what Shift Labs is aspiring to do and is doing today.
0: So our big picture of what we're doing is taking um, taking a really close look and taking advantage of untapped markets. So. Uh, and this is where so this is where the sort of that academic analytic perspective comes in. But if you look at what's happening to healthcare around the world, the fastest growth, double digit growth, is in emerging markets. And mm. you there's also a transition. There's these growing private healthcare sectors. So it's not all public sector sales, which is you know its own sort of incredibly slow and complex process. So what we have been able uh, to do is sort of look at this landscape, see the changing market. And say, okay, here is, an, here is a customer segment that is looking for products, and there just aren't a lot of people building products for that customer segment. So let's do that. Let's let's build what people need and what they want, uh, and then sell it to them. And that's what we're yeah. doing. And so uh, that human-centered design piece is what drives both our product development as well as our strategy in how we engage with these emerging markets.
1: Excellent. And so what's, uh, what's big that's next? And I I want, um, I'm curious as to from both perspectives, from a growth perspective and the the capital perspective, you've just, you alluded to or explained rather that you had another round of capital infusion, but what's next? What's coming next for Shift Labs?
0: So we did a seed round in 2015 and it's, it's, Almost the end of 2017 now. Oh my God, right. I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Can I take that back? <laughs> um, and so it's time. I, I don't think. Am I allowed to say this publicly? That that it would be time for. What
1: I don't time? see why not. Um, we're not soliciting crazy. any investments at this point. So, um, okay. but well, you're you're looking at proceeding into possibly another round of um, of equity investment uh, to to fund the next phase of growth. Is it another product that you have on the horizon or is it more of the uh, existing drip assist product?
0: So there's it's a whole product pipeline that we want to execute on in I the see. medication management space because we got into it and we what we've realized is there are these solutions that cost thousands of dollars or mm. you're counting drops by hand. Like that's it. There's nothing in the middle. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which crazy. is It is crazy. So and so we, there are other
1: opportunities like that that you've identified that I'm gathering.
0: Absolutely, we've identified right. that customers are clamoring for. We know that we know how to design products that are simple to use and durable, um, that are you know you, they don't require a lot of training. Our motto is "simple save lives." Like well, we and we, we know how to do that. We know how to build products like that, and mm-hmm. um, so that's what that's why we would raise capital is to um, pursue that um, that product pipeline. We've got a bunch of uh, benchtop prototypes, and we actually have another product that's. Uh, uh, pending. That's um under a review at the FDA right now, and so it's exciting.
1: But I, one question I wanted to ask earlier: I'm making the assumption you have a third party manufacturing these devices for you. You're not actually manufacturing them yourself.
0: We, when we started manufacturing for the veterinary space, we did our own building um, of product in in our office, and um, we even made a batch in my kitchen. That's another story. Um, But once we started making a medical device, um, that introduces a whole layer of regulatory requirements. So at that point, we moved to a contract manufacturer who has experience making other FDA-regulated products. And that was really essential to us as a small company, was to have that kind of partner who knows what they're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Thanks for sharing that.
0: And they're about... They're about 40 miles north of us. Oh, okay. So Interesting. So I would area. have
1: assumed they were overseas, but that, that was a mistake on uh, my part.
0: People always do that, yeah. but it's not necessarily, if you're making hardware, particularly something in a regulated space, um, You know, the cost efficiencies in, in offshoring in early days aren't necessarily there.
1: Great to learn. Great, Good good to know. All right, I'm going to start wrapping it up here. One of the things that caught my attention on your personal website is you, you had a quote that says, uh, what I do... I catalyze global innovation. Why I do it, I like solving the hard problems. So a question I always like to ask is, what do you love most about what you're doing today? I got to believe it's related to that solving of hard problems, but let me just ask you, what do you love most about what you do today?
0: You hit it spot on. I love solving problems. It's what makes me happiest. It's... um, it's what allows me to utilize that multidisciplinary background that I have most, uh, most effectively. And it's super fun.
1: Yeah. And is that we touched on this or I touched on this early on in the conversation. Is that, is that what keeps you, is that what answers for you? Am I working or am I doing the right thing? In other words, this business, you'll take it as far and as long as it continues to provide that for you. Hard challenges, hard problems that you get to try to solve. And when it doesn't, that's, you'll move on to something else, likely.
0: Yeah, that's. that's yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, the, solving pro, the solving the hard problems is is half of it. Um, the other is half of what keeps me going. The other half of that is the contact with the customers mm, okay. um, and hearing the stories of the patients that they've treated using our product. Of course. And as you know, running a, a small company is hard. It's hard and. Uh, On the hard days, what I do is I look at the pictures of the patients who've been treated with our product and that makes everything worthwhile. No doubt. No doubt.
1: All right. Is there anything about shift labs that we didn't chat about or you didn't share that uh, you'd like to mention?
0: Um, I just want to mention what an amazing team we have. Like we are, we're small, but we have such uh, an incredible group of talented and dedicated individuals. I'm Really proud of every single person that I work with, and I love coming to work with them. That's
1: fantastic. That's great when you have that environment. All right. I'm always uh, looking for book recommendations. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend?
0: Well, I am a big fan of science fiction. Mm. Um, I, If I had an alternate life, it would be writing science fiction. Wow. And one of my all time favorite books, and this is probably comes from my English professor days is called the diamond age by Neil Stevenson. Uh, and I love the way that it grapples with, um, future ideas around storytelling. So I think that's a great book.
1: Great, great recommendation. We'll have a link to that on the show notes page of this episode at the All right. Final two questions, Beth, uh, final parting thought, uh, Anything I didn't ask about, especially as it relates to, we've been talking about your incredible experiences and your experiences with Shift Labs and our listeners who are either about to launch their own business or are small business owners. Any last parting thought for our listeners?
0: Um, All the advice that you hear about how hard it is, um, it's all true. (laughs) (laughs) So do it when you can't not do it. And
1: because it's so hard, it's our it's our why that gets us through those hard times, is it not?
0: I think it is. You always start with why, right? Yeah.
1: And that's what you have to keep clear to, to make you fight through is what I've found.
0: Life is short yeah. and it might as well be interesting. That's right.
1: All right. Where would you like us to go online to find out more about you and Shift Labs?
0: Well, you can find out about Shift Labs uh, at www.shiftlabs.com shiftlabs.com. And I have an incredibly antiquated website that hasn't <laughs> been updated in years. And that's bethcolco.com But honestly, I don't even know what's there anymore.
1: <laughs> well, I got a picture off of there, so I'll have to make sure that's the right picture. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. And we'll have those links on the show notes page as well at the How of Business
0: you can um, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, we're at Shift Labs on Twitter, and we even have our own YouTube channel with a bunch of videos about our products, so you can come check us out. Great,
1: fantastic, yeah, those are another great places to learn more about you and the product. All right, um, this has been a fascinating conversation, you can go on for another hour, hopefully we'll talk you into coming back in the future to talk about some of these other fascinating topics thanks for being with us. Thanks for uh, you know going along with us. I apologize for all the technical challenges. <laughs> you were great and being patient with me on that. But thanks for being with us and for sharing of your knowledge today.
0: Oh well, Henry, thank you again for the opportunity and all the great questions. Um, I loved sharing parts of the story, and it was a real pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest again today was Beth Kolko thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com.
0: Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.